0: Welcome to the Ecosiv podcast. This is Austin Roberts. At Ecosiv, we are collaborating with others around the world who are focused on making a transition to an ecological civilization. And on this podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the types of transformations required to move toward a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. You can check out our website at ecosiv.org for more information. And if you enjoy this podcast and help support the work that we are doing at Ecosiv by making a donation at our website. For this week's episode, Ecosiv's Executive Vice President, Andrew Schwartz, was able to talk with the anthropologist, Isabella Alexander. They have a fascinating conversation about Isabella's important work on issues relating to transnational migration. Along with her current projects as a writer and documentary filmmaker, how migration issues intersect with global climate disruption, and how she finds hope while raising awareness about complex systemic injustices. This conversation was recorded at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Toronto, where EcoCiv organized a major track exploring issues of religion and justice. And now, Andrew and Isabella.
1: I'm here with Dr. Isabella Alexander, who's an award winning writer, documentary filmmaker, and socio uh, cultural anthropologist, uh, who holds a joint position as visiting assistant professor in the departments of anthropology and film and media studies at Emory University. So, welcome, Isabella. Thank you for having me. So, as a, what I might call a triple threat uh, anthropologist, <laughs> writer, and filmmaker, Um, How do you uh, see these sort of three areas coming together in your work to address complex global crises?
2: So I actually started my career as a journalist and I was pursuing writing, videography, photography, but all in the vein of journalism. And it was about a year into that that I started to realize that there were two things I didn't like about it. One was that I didn't like being told what stories to cover and two was that I didn't like how quickly I had to drop in and out of the stories, that I felt like just when I was beginning to see a hidden side of what was unfolding or develop the kinds of relationships that are necessary to tell the human side of the story, that I was on to the next thing. And so I came to anthropology kind of later in life. I decided that that might be a way for me to do exactly what I wanted to do, which was to take complex global often highly politicized issues and find the human side of them and for a long time i've been drawn to the kinds of stories that aren't being told because they're being hidden because they're being silenced because they're affecting marginalized voices i feel like that's often the place where there's an injustice waiting to be uncovered Mm. and so i find that combining research and storytelling whether it be in written format or through film allows me to humanize these issues and also to give voice to people whose stories often aren't being represented, either in academic circles or in popular media.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Speaking of telling these stories, um, your latest documentary film, uh, The Burning, uh, the untold story of Africans' uh, migrant crisis. Can you say a little bit about the film and what inspired you to tell this particular story?
2: Yeah, this had been the heart of my research for close to a decade. I have long been focused on the periphery to the EU and how the European Union is investing in closing down their borders in keeping back what is the largest population of migrants and refugees in the world right now, those who are fleeing uh, their home countries across the African continent. And I had just finished a book project on this. And I knew as soon as I wrapped that up that I immediately wanted to dive into a film because I thought that would give me a way to tell the story in a different way, to draw a closer lens into individual experiences in the midst of that crisis, not what does it mean for 68 million, but what does it mean for these three families? And also, it's a way for me to reach much broader audiences, you know, people who would never think to pick up an ethnographic text, which is most people, let's face it, um, and The beauty of film is that you can communicate across linguistic and cultural barriers. You can communicate with young and old. You can use it as a teaching tool. You can use it inside of classrooms, at community centers, at conferences like this. So it's been three years in the making, on the ground, filming with these three families from the DRC, Sierra Leone, and Mali towards the promise of Safer Shores.
1: Awesome. What do you see as some of this, like the strengths and the benefits of focusing on a particular story and particular person or family and their experience as opposed to sort of more generally talking about global migration or, or refugee um, issues?
2: Yeah, I find so often in the political debates or anytime you're sitting down and talking about mass numbers, it's easy to forget that we're still talking about people these are individual people whose lives are affected and it's really not a political issue it's it's a human one at the core of it and that across political across the political spectrum there's no one i believe who doesn't care what happens to 12 year old bambino who's one of i think the most compelling characters in the film it doesn't matter where you stand You see him, you hear his story, you hear his incredible courage and sacrifice, and there's no way you don't care about what happens to him. It's so much easier to get audiences to care about one person. And I think by caring about the one, it becomes harder to turn away from the masses. Mm. So the next time you read an article that gives you names, that gives you numbers instead of names, you read about 12 million or Four thousand, or whatever it might be, you see the face of that one person whose story you've come to know really intimately. So I feel like that's a good place for us to start.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think certainly to be, to give a face and a name and a in a life to the oppressed, as opposed to just an abstraction of oppression, um, is is a strong motivator for getting people to take action um, and to think about you know policy transformation and what can I do um, to make a difference. And the
2: more intimate the portrayal of someone's life. I mean, I, I as an anthropologist, I, I think if you want to tell someone's story well, you have to live it. And so I'm I'm mm. there with these families day in, day out. I've traveled with them back and forth across borders. And, you know, it's not a story of suffering. Certainly, Bambino and the others are in the midst of what on the outside looks like a crisis and they are facing overwhelming obstacles but it's also their day-to-day and it has all the highs and lows of anyone's day-to-day nice. and i think the closer the lens is the more you see yourself in the other because yes they're living on the other side of the world it might be a day-to-day life that seems at first dramatically different than yours but you start to see the human element
1: yeah what do you think uh, i mean the ability to, uh, connect as sort of the, on that human level, um, beyond, oh, somebody may look different than me. They may speak a different language or live right. in a different place around the world, but to connect and say, oh, well, our, actually our lives aren't, you know, sure there are differences, but there's also this common thread of experience and um, love and love. That's, right.
2: that's what That's the common thread between all of the journeys that I follow and between all of the people who I know in these spaces, which, you know, it's a population of hundreds of thousands. There's not a single person there who's not there because they have someone else who they're trying to help because it is such a torturous route, that Mm. migration route. You will spend years of your life on it and you will have to endure really unimaginable things, you can't do that without the dream of something greater. And that is that your younger siblings, your parents, your children, your wife, someone is on the other side who you are trying to help. And I think we can all relate to that. You see that story and you know what it feels like to love your child. You know that there's nothing in the world you wouldn't do to save your child. And you see that. And Kia and Fino and these characters who are there with very little resources and options, just doing the best they can to try to help their kids.
1: So, I mean, you do teach uh, at <laughs> uh, Emory University. And I know a lot of academics and scholars, you know, we've got our heads in the books and we're focused on our narrow research. But you've also spent a lot of time undercover um, in these communities in Africa. Can you say a little about your experience? I mean, what what really struck you, um, what inspired you uh, when you were sort of living with the people whose stories you're trying to share?
2: So much. I feel like that's my constant motivation to to keep doing this work. I have learned so much from that community about sacrifice for the greater good. I've learned so much about remaining hopeful and present in the face of obstacles. I have also learned what it means to courageously take on a project, which we've done together. This is our film. They're just as much part of the creative team as I am. And we're all really proud of this. We've all put so much into it. And to be able to see it finally come to fruition, I know it's, um, we didn't know if we would ever get here, any of us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I love for students to think about the different ways in which research can be done, the ways in which it can be conducted in a collaborative way, the ways in which you can incorporate the community members in being part of the research, and also the different ways in which you can present it, breaking out of the old models and thinking about how you can draw across disciplines and you can draw across mediums, incorporating things like art and film and storytelling. I really push my students to think creatively about their work.
1: That's great. Can you describe some of the ways in which your own sort of creative storytelling um, has raised awareness that led to some sort of transformative action, uh, positive social political change for these uh, marginalized populations?
2: I don't think we're there yet. So I just wrapped filming in August and up until the end of August, my primary goal had been no one knowing what I was doing. You know, Mm -hmm. I I was hoping to continue being able to do the work undercover, which meant keeping it all under wraps, so I wasn't writing publicly or speaking publicly about it. Um, I'm now in post-production with the film, so I'm still speaking about it only at select venues. In 2019, when the film and the book project are released, I think that's when we'll really start to see the positive change that it's had.
1: And what would you hope that positive change looks like?
2: It's different on different levels, sure. right? So. Um, As an educator, I care a lot about bringing this work into classrooms. On that level, what I'm interested in is having a new generation that thinks of themselves as citizens of the world, that feels connected Mm. to global issues on a personal, intimate level. And so bringing this into the classroom will not only mean the book and the film and the teaching guide that we've created, but also an app that connects individual students with people their age age and gender on the other side of the world so they can start to build those relationships. So that's the kind of goal that I have at that level. Um, On the governmental level, I think that this project is poised to expose some pretty grave human rights violations. And my hope is Mm -hmm. that this makes the parties responsible, accountable, and that we see positive change because of it. I would also personally love for it to open up dialogues about how we can reinvest money that's being spent really inefficiently in border control right now to help develop communities and provide educational and job opportunities at home, realizing that there is a part of the population that is fleeing because they aren't safe. They're fleeing places of active conflict and they need to be given safe passage. But there are also people who are fleeing because they have no economic opportunity. And for them, the 30,000 euros that the EU spends on each individual person pushing them back, that would be enough to completely change the life of their family and their community.
1: Absolutely. So speaking of sort of the reasons why people migrate, I mean, can you say a little about the underlying causes that you think are leading to social political realities of this transnational migration in our world's most critical border regions?
2: Yeah, I'd like to start by saying that the idea of us being in a crisis at the current political moment, I, I'm not on board with. I think mm. that there's a lot of political motivation for sort of sensationalizing what has always existed and will always exist. There are migration flows. People move. right? If you look at the numbers, there actually aren't more people hmm. fleeing right now than there were two or three years ago. I mean, even I'm coming from the U.S., so we're hearing these days a lot about this caravan, this migrant caravan of, I don't know, estimated somewhere between four and I think 6,000 people. Hmm. Well, the U.S. processes 500,000 asylum applications every month. This is nothing. A drop in the bucket. This is what the system was built to do, right? So I think it's important to, to question the headlines. Are we really in a moment of crisis? And then beyond that, the drivers are the same around the world. The drivers are persecution and conflict at home. And the drivers are equally poverty and lack of opportunity. And I think they're very often intertwined. It's not always as simple to draw a line between who is a migrant and who is a refugee because conflict often Mm. brings poverty and poverty often brings conflict. But um, that, that the same is true across the African continent in this project. I was interested in selecting families who represented not only different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, but also different drivers for movement. And so Mm. one of the families is fleeing a decades long conflict in the DRC. One of the families is fleeing ethnic persecution across West Africa, and then the other originally was fleeing extreme poverty in rural Mali, but even in the time since I've been filming, there have been encroaching jihadist groups there, which have started to complicate their factors for leaving. So Mm. it's now not only that the community they are forced to return to is poor, but it's increasingly unsafe for them to be there.
1: Absolutely. Do you think that increasing environmental degradation has had or, or will have an effect on um, migrant and refugee um, patterns?
2: Definitely. It already has in several of the regions that I work, especially in the areas surrounding the Sahara Desert, like Mali. We see years of drought completely destroying agricultural opportunities for families that had long been reliant on that as a means of livelihood. And yes, all the indicators show that that will be the primary source of new migrations in the coming years is people who can no longer sustainably live at home because their environments have been destroyed. And these are communities that depended on being able to grow food, both to consume, but also to sell.
1: So, I mean, we've got environmental issues, um, issues of war and violence, issues of poverty, um, economic issues, I'm sure education issues, all somehow contributing to this reality of, of migration. Um, and persecution and perse- of
2: ethnic and religious minorities, LGBTQ right. groups.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's complex. Where do we start?
2: <laughs> oh, I think that a really good place to start is by raising empathy and Mm. not sympathy. So not feeling sorry for people because their environment has been destroyed or their community is at war. They personally are under attack, but trying to see yourself in their situation and realize that that could be you. It could be your family. It might very well be you or your family in 50 years, depending on where you're coming from. And you know, the rising rates of these same drivers in our own countries, um, I push people to think about moving back from this being a highly politicized issue and recognizing that Mm. this is going to be the greatest humanitarian crisis that we all face Mm. in our lifetimes. So it requires us radically rethinking categories of migration and asylum and border control. The laws that currently control refugee and asylum applications are fairly new. They only came into existence post-World War II, and they were created to deal with that immediate crisis. So what do we do with this large population of Jews who do not feel safe returning to their home countries? Hmm. They weren't intended to last beyond that, and they weren't intended to address displacement on a global scale. So it is a system that really needs to be restructured for the current period.
1: So thinking about systems and about the you know sort of systemic injustices in the world that we live in, a world of turmoil, uh, and what gives you hope?
2: I am really grateful that I have the opportunity to teach and that that has been a counterbalance to this project because I'm spending about half of my time really at the heart of this crisis and about half of my time on the other side of the world in the classroom with the youngest generation of largely privileged American students who will have power to be voices of influence in the coming generation and seeing them and the way that they think about the world, and the way that they think about their role in it, that gives me a lot of hope. I feel very hopeful when I look at the generation that we have coming up. I think they are more compassionate, I think they are more engaged, I think they're more aware than my generation was. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one piece of it. I also, you know, I I turn to this idea of, when you see crisis, look for the helpers, and they are always there. whether it is on the most grassroots level or the larger organizational governmental level there are people in these spaces who are seeing this as a human crisis and who want to help i see incredible collaboration and cooperation in the migrant communities themselves their degree of i mean it's they're there on this sort of self-sacrificial mission and Their hope is that a few of them make it to help the community that's left behind and their willingness to lift up their brothers and sisters at their own detriment is really inspiring. I think people will see that and be amazed by that in the film. It is to see people who have so little and give absolutely everything they can possibly give to help one another. Strangers often who end up in the same camp. They don't even know each other.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Alexander, for taking yeah. time to join us. And um, for everybody listening, uh, look for the burning. Um, thank
2: you so much. You can check out the story at www.smallworldfilms.org if you're interested in meeting more.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks.